This week in the function room, it's in our nature, the fascinating world of biomimicry. My guest is Catherine Parks, a technologist with a career spanning nearly three decades in designing products and an expert in user experience. She tells me about what we can learn from nature when it comes to designing our technology and our systems. We talk about the stigmergy of termites, why ants don't have a boss, the benefits of hippo sweat, but also some unusual stuff too. Have a listen. This is Catherine Parks. I work as a user experience researcher. So it's within uh, the sort of discipline of what's also user experience design, which gets the odd acronym of UX um, for a a discipline which is about to be uh, making things simple and understandable. It's odd we have a, a cryptic acronym, but there you go. Yeah, a, a word um, that would get you lots of points in Scrabble. Yes. Uh, so within UX uh, design and research, um, the, the basics of what we do is uh, we're working on a product or service. First of all, we need to know who the users are. And then what we really want to try and find out is what the problems and the needs those users have um, in order to form the solutions that we're, we're going to provide in our product. So next, what we'll work, the next phase is looking at, okay, what are the solutions and are they, you know, which are the most appropriate solutions to um, solve those problems? Um, and then once the product has actually been built uh, to actually go, okay, did we actually go and solve those, those problems? Um, so the the discipline includes a lot of different areas of part psychology, part statistics, um, part understanding user behavior, part understanding design, but also understanding a lot of the business needs as well as um, technical needs. So working with different designers um, and engineers and product managers and actually how you put products together. So for pre-UX research, there's there's both a, a qualitative side and a quantitative side. And in bigger companies, you might have that separated um, so that some people specialize in, in quantitative, which is all about the number side. So all about the kind of what. And then on the qualitative side, um, it's much more about the why. Uh, so getting into the sort of deeper understanding and I sometimes put it that that my job is a bit like uh, channeling an inner four-year-old in that you're uh, just constantly asking, but why, yeah. but why? Um, and uh, yeah, one, one of the methods is actually just known as the five whys because that's the optimum number of the number of times you can ask, but why, uh, before someone uh, wants to scream at okay, you. Okay, so. that's, I mean, if we get nothing else out of this podcast, maybe I'll start counting the whys from the children from now on. So once you get beyond the fifth yes. why, you're kind of, getting to an absurd level of origin. Okay, good to know. Uh, I didn't see you at a UX conference. Um, and that in itself would be would have been fascinating enough. But what I, I saw you at an innovation event and you were talking about biomimicry, which is a word I'd seen and kind of got a sense of, but I never really heard discussed. And I found a really interesting uh, talk that you were giving. What What is biomimicry? Well, it, it's an approach to, to innovation um, that goes on the basis that um, life has already been on this planet a very long time, uh, sort of 3.8 billion years. Uh, so what we're seeing all around us are the sort of proven time-tested solutions so that nature has already worked out solutions to some of the complex problems around us. And so this approach can then be used to look for solutions, um, hopefully sustainable solutions, uh, to a lot of the problems that we have, and it can be it can be used at various levels. It can just be to inspire some creativity or a spark of a different way of perspective of of thinking, or people can use it quite more literally in actually implementing or sort of emulating what nature does into their designs. And sometimes it can be quite a leap from you know looking at uh, birds into uh, how trains can move faster and more efficiently and things like that. So so it can be, yeah, use at various different levels, but a lot is just in trying to think from the perspective 
that maybe nature has already worked things out and we need to just go and ask, you know, how, how would nature solve this problem? Because it may be a case that solutions are already out there rather than us going and trying to reinvent something in our own way. What so. got you into this? <laughs> it's hard to actually pinpoint any one particular thing going back. But um, I remember it was probably five years ago, I, I saw um, Kate Warworth talking about donut economics. Yeah. And it was kind of maybe one of the first times I'd ever seen anyone really clearly visually express how we were hitting sort of ecological limits and how we needed to live within those limits. And that got me interested in just seeing about sustainable design for someone working in design, you know, what sustainable design meant. And most of that, again, was in the maybe talking about materials or the physical world. But it mentioned this idea of of learning from nature and biomimicry. And that came together with some other areas that I was just thinking about in our sort of design work that I was doing around data visualization and and what we're doing a lot in research is looking for patterns and and how we get insights from patterns. Um, and that sort of leads to things like looking at, you know, the patterns in nature and Fibonacci and and those kind of areas. So bringing together that idea of how do we do design more sustainably and how do we look for those sort of natural patterns um, in how we actually present our information, but also do our research as well. Oh, what what, what um, were you sort of things, designing at the time? Yeah. Like, were, are you designing efficient ways of transferring information from A to B or ways of storing information or ways of connecting atomically separated entities? What was going on? It'd, it'd be... Um, Various uh, at the time I, w- I was actually consulting, so I was kind of jumping from from one area into the next. But there'll be things like data dashboards, for example. So you might be looking into what is the sort of most efficient way I can take all this information and display it in a way that it's well structured and well organized. So you'll start thinking about how to break it down into subsets and and patterns within that and. The thing like the rule of threes always comes up, for example. So so processing information, we, we really love doing things in threes. But then from your three, you know, how do you stack the next level of information under it? So in information architecture, say you're designing the structure of a website, um, you want to make sure that you don't have too many categories with low depth and you don't want to have too few and then too large a tree. So you you're kind of thinking a little bit on trees and okay. how how you make paths through that information to make sure people can get to navigate around your website, for example. So that's that's one side of it. Um, and just thinking about, yeah, the structures of information and and how the way our brains process that information. Okay. So information could be analogous to water traveling through a plant or like information as as a life source or whatever let's call it let's let's say it's essential for the life of the network that needs to travel as efficiently as a tree would get water from its roots or our energy from the leaves downwards or something sorry I'm, i don't know much about how trees transfer yeah. but that kind of that that's where you started anyway yes oh. that's 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 where it's it started and then um when i started my my current job i'm working in uh collaboration team so I I decided to see if I could use biomimicry just to learn more about um how nature collaborates um cooperates and um the different types of ways animals network or or work in in sort of uh yeah collaboration together and uh so you're you're collaborating with humans (laughs) and you're watching But you're watching. So what animals are you watching to see how they collaborate? Are they collaborating with different species or with each other, with other ants, if you know what I mean? Well, yeah, the, there's 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 both of those, really. So um, you can look at, uh, I think uh, in my talk, I, t- I talked about the, the Internet of Fungus, for example. Yeah. And that's very much a whole ecosystem base where there are multiple species who are working together to communicate and collaborate in a very reciprocal way. So... Um, the trees and plants um, are using the network um, to communicate with each other and they're passing resources and nutrients between each other. 
Um, and then the, the fungal network is actually uh, gaining from this because it's essentially getting fed sugars um, in order to survive. So, so that's a very much reciprocal and sharing um, environment. So that's kind of interesting from an ecosystem point of view. If you're looking at a singular species, uh, to look at uh, the case of ants. So ants have been on the planet for 150 million years, which is a huge, uh, long amount of time. And um, that includes surviving even when the dinosaurs didn't. So they've worked out really efficient ways of being on the planet and living in harmony with it um, and optimizing uh, how they do things like find food. Um, so the way the ants communicate um, is in an indirect method, which is called uh, stigmergy, but they essentially leave messages in their environment that um, then another ant could come along and pick up um, and build from. So a human equivalent might be something if you considered uh, something like Wikipedia. Yeah. So there's multiple different um, people coming along and contributing there's no centralized control or, or um, sort of master plan within it, um, but they all understand these signals um, and are able to uh, actually really efficiently solve quite complex problems uh, using those messages in their environment. Um, and they, they they leave those messages just with sort of pheromone trails. Yeah. But the 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 example of an ant colony has actually been used a huge amount in like computer science, for example, um, to solve a lot of really complex human problems. And, and the basis is just that there's um, the ant hive and there's, they're trying to find different food sources. So ants go out. If one of them finds a food source, it leaves a, a pheromone trail. Um, and a couple of ants might find, find the food source, but there's different trails back to the hive. One might be longer than the other, but they don't really know. But it's based on the the concept that um, the pheromone will evaporate over time. So it's it's a bit like people walking with leaky buckets. If there's two people walking with leaky buckets and it's a hot day and one goes on a much longer path and the other goes on a shorter path, the next uh, person coming along will see the shorter path still has water on it and go, well, Probably this is the better one to get to the water. Okay. Um, so they build up and compound these um, trails so that soon enough the whole hive will go, oh, well, now this has got a really clear path and, and we'll go and follow that. But they also have the, the ability if something blocks those that path. I, you know, I don't know if you were a kid that you may have messed around with ant trails and caused them to yeah. get, get a bit worried, but pretty quick enough they'll find another optimal path. So again, how we route data across the internet um, is very much based on this concept of very, very quickly finding a different path. So hopefully things don't go down in the middle of uh, a session that you're you're having online or your data is getting transferred across the internet. So, so there are sort of mathematical models that people have looked at from the ant colonies um, and taken it with those parameters of, yeah, What's the difference from you know the the hive to the food sources? What's the number of ants? Uh, what's the decay rate of the pheromones where the pheromone trails are? And they they've used these mathematical models, run them multiple times to find you know what the optimum shortest path is. Are ants useful for computers because ants and no disrespect to ants are relatively simple input output creatures and when you look at insects you're not dealing with a lot of emotion and uh you know like they respond as a group they're so intelligent individually they respond in a very elemental way to whatever stimulus happens is that why it's useful from a computer point of view because you're treating them like little gates or logic switches it's possibly more that they are all just um, got a singular vision of solving the problem of finding food. So they're all trying to solve the same problem together, but they're they're interesting because they're doing it in a distributed way, and they're doing it yeah within within their environment versus uh, sort of direct communication. Okay. Um. So, so different... they don't they don't have phones. 
they have like a, a boss, but the boss ha- has to be able to kind of a trust them to do to follow the basic rules, and b the communication system has to be so basic, you know, because the queen can't shout at them. <laughs> yeah, what, from what's ten yards is, away. Yeah, is the queen the queen isn't really a boss? Yeah, um, so they don't they don't have a boss. So it's it's interesting that they just form collaborative groups as well and they will do experiments and so they'll try different routes and do things and communicate back to each other on what worked and what didn't so they actually can be quite sort of innovative in their thinking so it's interesting from that point of view and different different species do solve the, the same problem in different ways so bees for example are somewhat similar in that they'll go out looking in the environment for food but they have a much more, almost more direct way of communicating. They come back to the hive and they do what's known as the waggle dance. Um, so by just doing this sort of vibrations and what direction they're pointing and what speed they're vibrating and things like that, they pass this message out to the rest of the hive gun. Yeah, really good food. And it's northeast from here. And then they can even say it's a, it's like 200 meters. So they they have a, a different way. And so... Again, algorithms have been used to model slightly different problems based on the communication methods of of bees. So, so these methods are used for for solving things like deliveries. Uh, so, like how to find the optimal path for doing deliveries, but it can be all sorts of things like how to do cover uh, scheduling. But the easiest example, I think, for for us in thinking about like how how this can be used in in computing or uh, products we build is something like Google Maps because, mm. um, you know, we want to get to A to B and it can offer us different routes. But the idea of us acting like ants is where um, it actually is telling us where the traffic buildup is. So when, when the map goes sort of amber or red, it's actually relying on all of us sending out signals back to go, I'm sitting in traffic. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and that enables the systems then to kind of reroute and, and look at those. So that's the sort of problem. And these models uh, might be used uh, in the background for. So That's very interesting. And in, in what is the method by which the, the data is taken from ants or bees? And then you mentioned, you know, an algorithm, like, do we, do we record and then measure and abstract? Do we create mathematical models to to make our own hive and then compare it to a real hive? And then that way we feel like we've got whatever equations in inverted commas they're using. How does it work, do you think? Yeah, I think it's a bit more interpretation. So so biologists have, have gone and, you know, studies these things to to learn about the different species and how they communicate. And then it's 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 more maybe somebody who works in computer science gets inspiration from it um, in seeing how this optimized path is done and then models that using parameters which are standing in for pheromones and pheromone levels and decaying signals to see if it's an efficient way um, of of actually doing computer modeling. Because a, a lot of it's down to the fact that the ants can do these things, just finding the shorter path, but actually using they're using the lowest amount of energy to get to their food. Um, and therefore, it's a very efficient way of doing things. There might be different models based on different animals that that are, you know, more about there's there's various types of swarming creatures which are used. So shoals of fish or like murmurations of starlings have have a whole different way that they're communicating, and it might be useful for a different type of problem. So, is um is one key element of this the benefit that nature gives us? particularly flying insects and birds is the 3d nature of space and that we're very we're still quite two-dimensional aren't we i mean we've you know we've flat maps and we have uh flat uh computer chips if you know what i mean like it's right we still think a lot in layers don't we but when you talk about the dynamics of bees because they're obviously retrieving food in in three dimensions they're going out among they could skim along the top of the flowers, but they might go up into the trees or starlings or fish. Is that is does that present a break like 
is that one of the areas in which we're learning how to think 3 d when it comes to yeah, efficient ways no, of getting I mean, from A to B? Like, say, for example, when we're going to be sending millions of drones out, for good or for bad, you know, uh, yes. is some of that coming from biomimicry? Uh, yes, so certainly looking at, at swarming behavior um, does have that 3D element. But but even I think there's there's interesting things. Even um, I saw uh, a study recently that they were looking at because um, there's quite a lot being looked at in things like just how we get or get more energy efficient. And so looking at how we can improve uh, wind turbines, for example, and at the moment, obviously, we have the the wind time turbines, which have these giant arms, and they take up a huge amount of space, um, and that's the most efficient we have right now. And they've looked at studies, um, for example, looking at um, the fins of whales, and the mm. fin of a whale has these bumps on them, and they're quite distinctive for each whale. But what they've they've found, for example, is that that those bumps on the 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 whale's fins actually enable it to have um, reduced drag through the water, but also have very uh, quite steep vertical lift. So if we take a smooth um, uh, uh, wing of a plane, um, it, it reaches a point where it stalls uh, if it's tried to go too vertical. So, so whales have overcome some of that stalling behavior using these, these bumps. And again, they've, somebody studied <laughs> all this stuff yeah. on whales and taken that and applied it to uh, the the arms of a, a wind turbine, for example, and they found again it, it can be a more efficient way of of uh, getting power from wind turbines and reducing the drag. Um, and but then somebody else has been looking at the idea of vertical um, wind turbines. So if we can have, because one of the problems with wind turbines is kind of disturbance between the turbines and also just to birds and the environment around them. Um, uh, but but looking at Wind vertical wind turbines is where you have a sort of centralized pole, and the arms are are now vertically up, and they're going around the central pole. Um, but in looking at that, you know, it's creating vortices, so this three D sort of space. So what they've looked at then is is shoals of fish, because um, shoals of fish um, find they're more efficient when they're they're swimming together in a shoal. And they actually use the vertices that they're all generating for for their mutual benefit. Mm. So, so there's, there's people looking at the idea of having almost little woodlands of vertical wind turbines and seeing if actually they can use the vortices that that one turbine builds to actually benefit another. And again, it's 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 a long way off, and we're still learning these lessons. But those are the types of lessons of how animals moving through their space um, that maybe could be inspiration for somebody to, to think a little bit differently. Um, and there's, there's one more example, actually, just <laughs> on the wind turbines. Uh, another group are looking at um, uh, the noise generated, because again, it's an issue with um, wind turbines, um, but they're looking at, at owls because owls can fly completely silently in the night to find their prey. So again, it's it's about them being able to find their food. Um, but they're looking at the, the sort of feather patterns on on owls. And again, just the distribution of those feathers and maybe maybe the mathematically modeling I'm not them, I'm not sure. But again, seeing if we can look at the surfaces that we have on these um, turbines to actually have a more feather-like almost um, aspect to it to reduce the noise. So, you know, lots of ideas and and some will work and some won't but but um it's kind of making just a, a leap of of trying to find out is there a solution that i can think of a parallel to bring to to what i'm looking at so it sounds like a challenge for the mathematics of this because i suppose if you think about the way maths and physics has proceeded or the acquisition of knowledge that it's very much about conquering the unknown and you know, putting equations on phenomenon. And it's all approximation, you know, like, you know, Newton knew it, was, it wasn't exactly 9.8 or, you know, like every, as time goes on, we refine. But in the area of biomimicry, like, it feels like not so much unlearning, but having to strip away what we think we know about fluid dynamics or why planes go up or whatever, because 
I suppose it's almost like trying to find out why shit just seems to happen. But, it, you know, because because nature seems to have solved that problem in terms of like a seagull doesn't suddenly stall. Yes. You know, it kind of exactly. it, the 150 million years of engineering or however long it's been around is expecting nearly every type of storm. I'm not saying storms don't blow birds off course and there's certain things they simply can't deal with. But within the the millions of tiny battles that nature fights with the rest of nature, it typically, by and large, seems to have solved differential equations we haven't quite got the grasp of. Or am I talking? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I, I, I think it does need a little bit of humility in 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 people actually thinking, you know, maybe we don't know the best way of doing this, and maybe maybe we can learn. And and to to suggest that yes, we can learn from things like ants and termites um, <laughs> does affront people who can do it themselves, specialists. And and I'm sure all the engineers listening to this, me talking about uh, wind turbines and and you know owls and and fish shoals yeah. and stuff. I think that's just absolute rubbish. Yeah. But, if if the ants are so great, how come they haven't built any wind turbines? Yeah, like, or exactly. why don't they have any phones? Yeah. Uh, so it is it is more about sometimes you're so in the depths of a problem that you're just stuck and and we need different perspectives and so you know with with where we are right now on the planet i think having anything that brings in a different perspective can just be handy because you may not obviously use the owl feathers but it might just make someone go and look at the surface texture and go okay is there some way that we can do reduce the noise because they may not have been concentrating on the noise when you know we first did because we had to get efficiency right first and we haven't got efficiency so you know is the noise in the environment just a secondary thing um, and yeah. but are are the ways to then you know start from the premise of okay we need to harness the wind or we need to harness the sun um you know is the way we're doing it right now the best approach we know it's not because plants are plants are living all around us off solar power and they're doing it so much more efficiently than we are. So, you know, maybe we did need to be a little bit more humble and go, I should respect the plants around me because, you know, <laughs> they're just living and growing in a very sustainable, environmentally friendly, self-powering way. And they're growing on their own. Uh, you know, what 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 is powering them? How, how can they use so little energy yeah. in doing what we find quite difficult to do? So. And on the subject of plants, have people found anything about the way they're converting uh, solar energy into, like, does has photosynthesis taught us anything about solar energy so far, are you aware of? A, a lot. I think people have just looked at the leaf shapes and the way particular leaf shapes work in different environments and how they optimize to face certain directions and how they do that. I mean, most are so the panels right now are flat because we're putting them on flat roofs. Um, and yes, maintenance wise and things like that, having a huge petal device coming out the top of our roof is not that easy, but it could be the most optimal. So that there have been sort of solar panels which have been based on sort of coming out with petal type and leaf type structures. Um, and again, there's issues in them. We're not that good at it yet. Um, but there is, I'd say, you know, just lots that we could learn in 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 that idea of having sort of. I know they're looking at fle more flexible solar panels now, and rolling those out it could be a lot cheaper um, than having the big fixed, you know, ones that we need have right now. So that's again a, a direction people are looking is the more flexible structures and whether those can then actually move to face the sun. Um, as as it moves around and those 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 sorts of things uh something i think the theme running through the chat so far is very much you know optimizing and efficiency and the sheer uh, what's the word you can't beat a long time as a way of uh optimizing and all that is nature also inefficient does it does it do things for no apparent reason you know like <laughs> is there things that we have said that's literally unbiomimicrable. Un <laughs> I don't know, actually. Um, I, I guess I guess what would be interesting is is looking at 
species that didn't survive and maybe going back before humans because maybe things that we didn't cause, um, you know, the extinction of um, and why they didn't survive. And it's possibly because what they were doing was inefficient or else wasn't able to adapt to the changing environment. So, so there's been obviously huge changes on the planet and certain species and animals and things didn't survive whilst others did. And seeing what the difference between those, I think, is is kind of where the interest maybe is. And yeah, what are the inefficient patterns and whether yeah. they have been, whether there are inefficient patterns right now, because what we might see as inefficient patterns might have its own value that we don't know about. Yeah. And in different environments, as you say, like big animals obviously seem to have had the toughest time over the over hundreds of millions of years. They yes. they seem to be the most vulnerable to yep. just like, I don't know, big companies and stretching the analogy now, but but it, it would seem that hiding from an asteroid is easier when you're a rat than yes. if you're exactly. a, a, a and, and, and underground. So yeah, a woolly a woolly mammoth is not able to adapt particularly quickly if its environment gets suddenly an awful lot hotter. Or, you know, it doesn't it can't consume the amount of food it was consuming, or it's it's again not able to collaborate together with other woolly mouths, for example. So yeah, it does seem to be, and again, I, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but it does seem to be that the the the, the smaller animals that were able, which are, as you say, seemingly simple on their own, but able to, to work together in ways, are able to survive by being sort of flexible and agile. Um, what about in our quest for finding out from nature, uh, you know, and trying maybe to change our way from exploitative to just watch and learn. But are there ethical considerations when it comes to biomimicry? Like, is there things we shouldn't mimic or ways we shouldn't mimic it in? I mean, have you, have you, has it affected you yet? Have you, have you come across in your work? Does it come up yet? If you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's obviously bad ways of using everything. So, so taking something like swarm intelligence, um, I mean, it's very quick. You can get into a black mirror episode, uh, whereby, you know, people are sending out drones, as you say, swarm drones with, uh, you know, poisonous, uh, and, you know, looking at poisons that animals use to kill other, you know, animals and, you know, nature is, is pretty cruel. So if you if you want to mimic the cruelty of, of nature as well, um, you know, the, there there are obviously ways for people to do that. So so biomimicry in itself tries to say that they are looking for th- sustainable solutions. But yes, if people want to use nature to, as a as a weapon. There's certainly ways to mimic it to do that. Um, you know, plagues of locusts are, are not much fun, I believe. So, <laughs> and again, you're talking. We we seem to fixate on on the war elephant end of the spectrum, <laughs> when in fact it's the small thing we'll be mimicking, the thing that can, you know, travel in three dimensions and be very uh, get inside the defenses. Yeah, and 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 yes, the. The the simple things that just do their job without you sort of noticing, like plants, uh, you know. How do um, people respond that you talk to about this, to the idea that, you know, in ter- say in collaboration and large groups, because nobody wants to believe they're an ant, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so so does, fru- does, does awareness of, in, in mimicry, does awareness that you are a termite get you annoyed and make you actively uh, work against the common goal of the of the mound. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly the termites are so much worse than the ants, which is why I, I slightly love using them because people's faces when you say these these are these lot of better collaborators than us. It's like, ah, yeah. um, so yes, there is always a, a, a sort of people do want to believe that, that humans are are superior and and uh, there's resistance maybe to learning about it. Um, but I think people don't ever think that termites are able to do things like form little groups and run experimental models and feed that and have social networks. And so just taking people into the view that um, uh, with the termite mounds, uh, they have like this whole society that they've built. So these really simple creatures 
um, have, you know, the, the termite mounds are these unbelievably efficient air conditioning systems. So in the middle of the desert, um, they have these lovely cool chambers down under the desert. So things like that do make people go, okay, I, I have misjudged termites maybe a little bit. And certainly in, you know, certain parts of the world, they'll be eating through your building and they'll be absolute pest. Um, but, but it is a good example of people maybe changing their perspective on what they thought were like drones. So like just all following the exact same path that actually within those societies, there's, there's actually some of the termites will, will be doing child minding and they'll be mm. minding other termites' children whilst they go out to work. Um, they'll have waste disposal systems. They have their food store systems. Um, so what seems like just a lump of mud has been developed into quite a sophisticated society, again, with without that centralized control and things like that. So it's actually interesting sometimes to see if people just dismiss this as this is some crazy woman talking about termites or or do actually go, actually, you know, maybe there is something we can learn in how we collaborate in that maybe our hierarchical structures are not the way that people actually work together. So so in the collaboration system that I that I work on, we we combine things like meetings and messaging and calling, but with a hybrid world, um, we're all sort of working at different points across the, the globe. And so we're actually all leaving messages a bit more asynchronously. So can we bring together that idea of working asynchronously and leaving messages like pheromone trails uh, together with the idea of, of what we're doing live right now, which is more like sharing information directly. So, yeah. so some of those ideas can help us in just thinking about how do we spin up those little groups? How do we get experimental things together? And that's some of the stuff that, you know, I've shared my work and we're thinking about now in how we just um, move forward with our collaboration environment. So it's interesting with, with hybrid working and particularly where people are distributed um, around the, the planet. So I work on teams. We've got people in, in India and Shanghai and China, and I work a lot with uh, people in the US. So often during the day, I'm not working at the same time as those. So we're, what we're kind of doing is leaving those little messages in our environment in the same way as sort of stigma G happens. And those are like little pheromone trails. So when we're using our messaging tools, um, we're working in a very asynchronous way and building up those trails. And we have different groups you know, that we're in and each of those groups collaborating. And then when we, we need to have sort of direct communication, we can have meetings and things like that. But it's interesting to see how much, you know, how much we can do without needing meetings um, mm. because we are all working in different time zones. And yes, it's more time consuming to get everyone together all at one point in doing that. So that's just an interesting model to think of how we form those groups and and do like that idea of having those experiments that you can run and bring them together and in setting up most people's work you'll find that you're not necessarily working in your hierarchy of just your team um that you're working across those different cross-dimensional areas of um working with the engineering and the product team and you've got project teams um so the structure of how those things grow and evolve across a company can be just interesting to think of from a very organic yeah. lens and and seeing how again those social insects manage to do this in a distributed way without without the hierarchy um can just be a yeah again it's just an interesting analogy so it's not an exact <laughs> science you're I looking know, at yeah. more just what's an organic structure of how things grow um and develop but do things quite efficiently so you're not replicating information in lots of places how can you share across those different groups um and and that kind of idea of of yeah collaboration from a holistic and organic point of view yeah of course one of the reasons why we are i'm just saying this now off the top of my head but one of the reasons why we are often inefficient in communication or collaboration is we're covering our arses like we want 10 copies of the of the email, we CC everybody, or we all have to go to a meeting so that you were at the meeting too, so you you're part of this. Like, is one of the things that we, uh, what we're trying to mimic, like trust. Where does trust happen in the 
in nature and do we mimic it well or badly or do we need to think differently in terms of trust or is it that nature doesn't have any like bad actors as such is that one flaw in the biomimicry do you know what I mean because they all act according to their nature (laughs) like nobody wants to be king of the ants (laughs) you know what I mean there's there's no far right or far left ants the, the rebel ant who's found the yeah. food and just sitting there like gorging himself, getting bigger yeah. and bigger and, and not telling the others where the food is. Yeah, it, it doesn't happen. But what, what's interesting, again, with the hybrid work and, and uh, you know, when we were all moved to remote working suddenly is there was initially this idea of distrust that people would be able to work from home. And some people still have that. But but in, in most cases, people were able to adapt and and pick that up. And they found you know, actually having innate trust in people to get their work done was actually the most successful way of doing it rather okay. than actually trying to control things. Um, so, but it, but it's it's also just really interesting in, you mentioned sort of duplicating information and, and you know, the inefficiencies of maybe having all to need to be in the CC'd or being in the meeting. So, it's an interesting area where we're kind of looking at the moment just with with AI. There's ways we can use AI to to optimize some of those things. So to automatically, say, try and produce summaries for, for meetings so that if you miss the meeting, you can get the summary. And again, there's, there's huge uh, areas we're looking at in research just around the trust of that, how accurate it is. Uh, so it's an area my group are, are kind of looking at um, at the moment. It's, we don't have the answers, but it's it's interesting just to hear different perspectives on it and and where we might go with it so what have you learned about like generalists and specialists ants have particular jobs some are some mind the grubs some some are builders some carry things some get food um and yet as humans a lot of us get bored with doing the one thing and want to be you know consultants or generalists or in my case <laughs> bullshitters you know like does it teach us anything about the the mix of generalists or specialists or anything like that that you've seen yeah I don't know actually I'm not sure I do know that when they're talking about how like those super organisms those, those social insects collaborate that diversity is important so to I think they do need to have that range of different things and possibly yes having generalists within it is is an interesting idea there aren't there aren't necessarily leaders but then there's there's local groups and there's there's those within their the local group certainly with the ants are fam- famously there's certain ants will go up in the tall grass and survey around them and they're acting almost a little bit like local leaders and 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 uh, generalists a little bit more in that they're sort of poking their head above and, and seeing all the different areas and, and where they are. Um, so, but I've never, I've never looked at that question specifically. Okay. Um, That's all right. That's a, something, to, something for the, uh, for the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Just getting back to pure biomimicry in the non-organizational sense, but in the, in the technological sense, in the product design sense, what kind of things over the course of the last few years make you look at nature in a completely different way based on, how what good ideas you've seen already come from nature yeah well one of the one of the most sort of famous examples i think is is the bullet trains in in japan so when they they first built them they sort of optimizing just for speed and they could go 300 kilometers an hour um, and they had this bullet shaped um uh nose and it was it was kind of that's what they'd modeled it on but when they they actually found putting it into practice that um, a, it hit just like environmental sound issues. But secondly, particularly coming into the cities, there were tunnels it needed to go through. And when it was coming out of the tunnels, there was this massive tunnel boom and it was just unlivable um, for the people in, in those cities. Um, so one of the engineers was a keen bird watcher and he was um, watching kingfishers as they dive into the water to get their fish. Um and he just noticed that they had the smoothest, no splash, silent way of just being able to get in, grab the fish um, and, and come back out. And so he remodeled the front of it was a huge leap to go and remodel these hugely expensive trains. But 
you know, he noticed that the, the beak, you know, as long as being long, it had these sort of channels down it and that was helping with the, the sound. Um, and he remodeled this and, and found that not only was he getting over the, the tunnel boom um, noise, but he was actually, the trains were able to go like something like 15% faster and use 10% electricity. So it was a real giant leap, but a win across. And that's, that's a kind of big example. Um, but the, the, another famous example is just um, the simple story of a man walking with his dog in the Alps and the dog comes home covered in these tiny burrs and the poor man spends hours just pulling them out. And it's a, kind of just a real annoyance. But he, again, he was a scientist. And so he looked at the, the burrs under the microscope and saw the, the amazing little hooks that they had. Um, and again, it was a bit of a leap, but he, he went in, vel uh, invented sort of a hook and loop fastenings, i.e. what we call Velcro. Okay. Um, so I, I kind of love examples like that, where someone's working in a, a whole different area and they just see something and it inspires um, areas like that. They've looked at the, the, like the, the feet of geckos and how they're able to just walk, you know, climb vertically up the wall and, and looked at that for, for things like glues and yeah, um, uh, substances that you can use modeled on like gecko feet. Um, so, so some of those leaps, I always find good fun. And yes, I always like to get the hip, hippo sweat uh, into any talk because that's always <laughs> a fun in a business conference to uh, see people's face when you, you bring up hippo sweat. But, but again, people just studying hippos have found um, that actually uh, when they're out in the hot heat of the sun, that their sweat actually has a natural um, sunscreen. But it's also, it's again, it's in balance with its environment. It's not toxic. And we have so many toxic chemicals we're pumping in the ocean. So, so you know, the idea of having hippo sweat inspired sunscreen, I think, uh, is always one to just make people see the lighter side to it, maybe, but also just inspiration can come in, in the oddest of places. So. Very good. What are you most excited about as you look out five years from now in the in? what I presume is still a relatively young science uh, of biomimicry. Well, it's funny because it's not that young. I mean, people have been doing it for a very, very long time, going back to, you know, Leonardo da Vinci looking, you know, studying birds uh, for his flying machines. But what's interesting right now is I think just the realization that we are living beyond beyond those limits of, of what's sustainably possible. And therefore, looking for sustainable solutions is suddenly more important. Um, so I do think looking at efficiency and, and energy efficiency will be really important. And the thing is, none of us want to change what we already have. So we need to look for more efficient ways of doing things. And even something like if you take our our video call today, we're both transferring video for, for actually, <laughs> ironically, as a, an audio pod podcast. So we do, probably don't need to have really high resolution mm. traveling between us, but we're kind of used to having quite high definition things. But there's ways of which, you know, we can maybe just downsample um, at, at my end, send you a smaller signal, which is much more efficient, and ways of upsampling it on the far end. And again, that may be somewhere where you could use something like generative AI, because mm. It knows what you and I both look at for the first few minutes and the fact I wave my hands a lot or things like that and, and possibly can actually use models to just go, right, I don't need to transfer every second of this. And we already have very good like video um, uh, compression algorithms, but there may be smarter ways that we can actually still do the things that we do. Um, but the actual amount of energy we're, we're using and the amount of data we're transferring we might be able to reduce. So those sorts of things I think are, are interesting is enabling us to keep into the, the sort of life we're used to. We will have to make quite a lot of changes, but there's some things maybe we can just see where real efficiencies can come. And going back to the ants again, distributing, 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 like, you know, um, the pheromones carrying all the information you need, it stays there and people travel or ants get what they need from that for that particular job. They don't need to yeah. know a giant picture. And so it's just an ethos in terms of how we think. Yeah, I think, I think, I think optimize what, what nature just does is really well is it uses the, the minimum amount of energy um, to do things that we might think that's a bit of a lazy, lazy approach, but, but 
that's how nature, the plants that are sitting around us use minimal amounts of energy, but they're doing actually quite a complex job of actually taking in carbon dioxide and turning it into, you know, oxygen and taking in toxins and um, doing all that with, with just a little bit of solar power and a tiny bit of water is pretty amazingly efficient. Um, so the things that we do quite inefficiently now, um, I think the areas where we might look back in a while and go, oh, do you remember when we used to use fossil fuels to do this? Um, you know, that would be an ideal world where we can do that, where we can have all our roofs covered in these wonderful little spinning uh, wind turbines, which are perfectly silent and perfectly efficient, um, along with our solar panels, which are, you know, shaped to actually maximize, uh, you know, the sun coming through. Um, yeah, our wind, wind turbines, uh, even wind turbines that are basically trees, because obviously trees absorb a lot of energy. Yeah, exactly. uh, in, in storms. So that's something to look forward to in otherwise, uh, yes. sometimes when the news is grim, yeah. uh, we, we look at nature in a different way. I'll walk out now and look at everything as a If as we can get wind turbines that, that also um, act as, yeah, they're, they're taking carbon dioxide out of the environment and using, you know, solar power generated at the same time. Combine all of that together, it would be wonderful. And Excellent. yes, that's essentially a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, can, I can't think of any better way to finish than just talking about trees. So thanks so much, Catherine, for oh, coming into the Function Room today. It's been a pleasure. Great to talk to you. That's it from the Function Room this week. Thanks so much, Catherine Parks. Uh, you can find her on LinkedIn. And also she mentioned topics such as Stigmergy, S-T-I-G-M-E-R-G-Y. Go and look it up. And while you're looking it up, go out and look at nature differently. See what the woodlice and the wasps and the bees and all of the things you just took for granted. See what they're up to. Their organization, their efficiency. We could never. So if you like the podcast, please share and review and give it a five-star review. We find that to be the most optimal and efficient one after 150 million years of evolution. You can find me on Twitter at Colm O'Regan or the podcast at Function Room Pod. For now, until next time, bye-bye.